Not sure what to make for dinner? Need some inspiration? Mondays and Wednesdays, join Gabriel and his food hero guests on The Dinner Special. And now, here's your host, Gabriel So. Welcome to The Dinner Special. I am Gabriel So, and I am so happy to have Megan Nolan of Bread and Barrow joining me on the show today. Meg is a proud New Englander who grew up on the sandy beaches of Cape Cod. Bread and Barrow is her space where she shares her love of New England and recreates the magical moments from her childhood, like memories of her dad's culinary genius over a campfire and her mother passing down the importance of family dinners. Meg, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you so much, Gabriel. So nice to be here. Oh, it's totally my pleasure to have you, Meg. You paint such a beautiful picture of your childhood in New England. Can you share what it was like growing up in Cape Cod and the role that food played? Yeah, so growing up on Cape Cod was really great. It's a really beautiful spot to be a kid. I mean, it's funny, the summers are so bustling. There's so many people, it takes like an hour to get to the grocery store some days where normally it would just be a 10 minute drive. And then the winters are really desolate. So you kind of have this polar opposites, but it was a great spot to be a kid. I mean, the summers were full of, you know, beach days and going to the vineyard. And then the winters were very quiet and rainy. We didn't get much snow on the Cape. So I think that's why we spent a lot of time in New Hampshire on the weekends. Because I think my dad would go a little stir crazy if he was on the Cape all winter long. But, you know, some of those rainy, wet winter days were some of my favorite. I mean, my mom used to take us kids down to like Woods Hole and have a cup of chowder overlooking the, you know, the wet landscape, which I still love to do. So it was a magical childhood. It was. Well, from a native like yourself, how do you feel about having all these tourists like descend upon like one place at one time? It must be kind of crazy. You know, it can be crazy. I remember, you know, my mom biting her tongue on many drives through town. (laughs) But I think being in a spot where you kind of rely on tourism. So growing up, of course, you're kind of like, oh, the beaches are full and you can't get a parking spot. And but then you also have to realize the way that we survived the winners were on tourists. So you have to have a love-hate relationship with the tourists. Right. Well, why did you feel it was important to share New England and your treasured memories of your favorite place, possibly in the entire world, on Bread and Barrow? I think for me it was, I was reading a lot of blogs from the West Coast and from the Midwest and from the South that had a lot of important heritage and traditions that they would talk about. And it kind of just made me think like, you know, we have that here too. And I sometimes don't think that people realize that we have a little bit of everything. You know, we have the beaches, we have the mountains, we have the farmlands and the ocean right there. So I feel like there's a lot of resources that sometimes people don't either take advantage of or maybe even know about. So that was one of the things I kind of wanted to showcase, that we could do all of that in our just one little tiny section of the United States. Well, I mean, you just mentioned that you liked the rainy days because you liked being indoors and enjoying like a chowder or something looking out the window. (laughs) Food clearly played a big role growing up for you. Did you always have a curiosity around cooking and being in the kitchen? It's funny. I don't think I always did. I think... 
it was when I was little, I actually really did. My easy bake oven was probably my favorite toy. But other than that, you know, growing up, I wasn't so interested in it. My sisters and I often played restaurant. <laughs> so that was one of our games that we had like a little now that I think about it, kind of creepy setup in our basement <laughs> where we had like lawn chairs and a table and we had a big menu that we'd write on the walls in chalk. But then, you know, in my teens and early 20s, I wasn't interested in it much until I moved in with my now husband. And that's when I kind of started looking back to things that we had made because I was cooking for myself for the first time and was like, well, what am I going to make tonight? And that kind of made me get more into cooking for myself and for other people. When you started cooking for yourself, were you doing a lot of experimentation? Like, how did you learn to cook? My mom is actually a really good cook. She cooked for all of us. I'm the eldest of four, so there's six in my family. So she always had a homemade dinner for us. So she definitely taught me my basics. And my aunt is also a really great cook. She's been cooking her whole life. It's been her passion. She's obsessed. So they're both resources that I always go to. Like, how do I make a Brene sauce? And how do I do this? And, you know, roasting a chicken was one of my first things. It was like, I don't know how to do this. So I would call them. But I also did look to bloggers and websites and cookbooks. And a lot of it was trial and error. There was a lot of really bad cooking at first. Well, when you were calling your aunt or your mom to sort of figure out some of these recipes that you really enjoyed growing up, you know, were they curious of why you were, you know, sort of wondering about these childhood recipes? Because, I mean, you mentioned you weren't that interested in cooking in your late teens and early 20s. Yeah, they were, definitely. I mean, I think my mom probably took it as, well, oh, she needs to eat. Like, <laughs> she needs some recipes. But I think my aunt was really excited, like, so do you like cooking? Like, is this a passion? Or So we definitely talk a lot about it. We're the two crazies of the family that'll just sit and talk ingredients and farms and different things like that. So yeah, they were excited, I think. Cool. Well, with your aunt, I mean, is there something that you enjoy making together with her or even with your mom? Yes. So we have a tradition in our family. All of the women in my family, actually, on my mother's side, get together every Easter and make my great-grandmother's Easter bread. And, you know, there's, I don't even know, like six or seven women. We all get together at my grandmother's house usually and make this Easter bread together. And we have a competition of like, who does the best loaf? It's been going on since I was a kid. My mom even bought a trophy one year to pass around. <laughs> Awesome. So it's not a bonding experience necessarily. It's more of a <laughs> competitive, everyone for themselves experience. Well, you write that your mom taught you the importance of family dinners. Do you have nightly sit down family dinners today? No. <laughs> you know, I can't say we do. A lot of it ends up being on the couch. But I make dinner every night unless we order sushi, then I order out. But I make dinner every night usually. And because it's just my husband and I, it sometimes doesn't, and he works late a lot of nights. But once we have children, I feel like that's something that's really important to me because I do think that it really brings a family together. I think that it teaches children more than just sitting down to have dinner. There's a lot of different lessons that can come from a family dinner. So, yeah, I mean, I do think it's a really important thing. Well, I mean, for those of us who 
want to start doing this or make this a nightly ritual with our children, as you were mentioning, do you have any tips for making it happen? Like, how did your mom manage to corral sort of everyone together every single night to have dinner with? So my mom was fortunate enough to be a stay-at-home mom. So that definitely helps because you have your day to kind of prep. I mean, you know, being a stay-at-home mom is a crazy job in and of itself, but I've also been a nanny for a really long time. That's what I was doing to make money before I got into cooking and writing and things. So I worked for quite a few families that found this to be challenging because it really, it is. I mean, it's hard to manage a full-time job, a household, children, and get dinner on the table by six o'clock. It can be crazy. So obviously organization is key. So I think if you're planning on, if you have children and you work and you're planning on doing nightly meals, I think prepping on Sunday, knowing what your meals are going to be, either making them all and keeping them in the freezer or just, you know, if you have a crock pot, setting that and just saying like, okay, six o'clock or six thirty or seven or whenever is easiest for you is dinner time. And that's that we're doing it. Set a table. I think setting the table is huge because sometimes if you just like throw down a pile of forks and a pile of plates and say, okay, kids, like dinner's ready. It doesn't always end up the way that you want it to. So if you set the table and say like, okay, five minute warning, we're having dinner. Then it kind of gets the family to think about, okay, we're sitting down together to eat and share a meal. And I mean, I like to start a meal with a prayer or something to say, because then that also gets the family all kind of on the same page. You're not thinking about, oh, well, I really still need to mow the lawn or do that laundry or, you know, so-and-so needs to do his homework. You know, you kind of can get yourself all together in one space for a little bit of time. Right. No, I think that's a great idea to start the dinner off with sort of, if it's not a prayer, then maybe just a simple question to, you know, the kids or something like that. Because, you know, growing up for me, my parents were super busy, you know, they worked a lot. And, you know, we always tried to have sit down family dinners together. But, you know, we ended up not exactly using the best of that time, I feel like. I feel like, you know, we were like either just, you know, watching TV or something. (laughs) And we weren't really like, you know, making the most of it. So I think, you know, if you just started off with maybe some questions, you know, some fun questions or whatever, and it can really lead to something more valuable than just this ritual. Exactly. Yep. Well, Meg, I've never been to New England. How would you describe how locals approach and share food? Okay, so New England has a reputation of being kind of stuck in their ways. And I mostly feel that that's still true, which is hard. It makes it a little tough for table sharing. I mean, sharing these meals together or having the local spot to go. I don't think it's a very popular thing to do in New England, which is a little bit tough. But that being said, I feel like there are a lot of younger chefs that are coming out with these awesome ideas I mean, Island Creek Oysters is an oyster company out of Duxbury, which actually happens to be where I went to high school. They've been doing some really cool things with getting the community together and doing an oyster festival and really getting people involved with what they've been doing in their town. And I know a chef, Patrick, who just started a restaurant at Applecrest Farms in New Hampshire, and he too is really into 
not only showcasing what New England cuisine could be, but also bringing people in and really getting the word out there of like wanting to bring in other people, collaborations and things. And I think that that is really cool. And that's kind of the way that I hope that New England cuisine is going to go. Because right now it can really be just stuffy pubs with chowder and fried clams, which there's nothing wrong with that. Those are great too. But sometimes people I think are a little wary of changing their direction. Right. So would you say that you're at the beginning stages of having a huger food scene? I kind of feel that way. Yeah. And I hadn't really noticed it until I started talking to other chefs and things and and seeing that I do sometimes feel New England is a little bit behind on the food scene. But there are, like I said, there are these amazing chefs and restaurants. And Boston's a totally different feel, too, because they do have a lot of really awesome restaurants and chefs. But as far as, like, the outskirts, there's not as much. In the best hole-in-the-wall restaurants in town, what kind of food can we expect Again, I feel like the hole-in-the-wall restaurants are the ones that have been there for like 75 years and don't change their menus. So you might be able to get a really great cup of chowder and like maybe a lobster roll, but that's probably it. As far as like these newer restaurants go, like Patrick's restaurant, I mean, he has like buttermilk fried oysters with green tomato mayonnaise and what's it called? Cabbage that he's fermented himself, like all that like really cool newer twists. I mean, he uses seaweed in dishes and forages for mushrooms and things. And so that kind of stuff, I feel like is where you'd want to seek out in New England. And what's his restaurant called again? It's Applecrest Farm. It's called the Bistro at the Farm. Awesome. Well, is there a dish at Applecrest Farm at the Bistro that if someone was to visit that you really enjoyed? So Patrick just opened this restaurant like six months ago, and I haven't even been in yet. But he used to be the chef at a restaurant called Saya, which was in Newburyport. It's still there, but Patrick's obviously left to kind of start his own venture. His imagination is just amazing with food. So literally everything on that menu was good. I can't even pick a single one thing, but he's a great chef. Awesome. Well, Meg, this doesn't have to be a food question, but what is one thing you want people to know about New England? I think that I would like people to know that while we still are pretty old-fashioned and that a lot of things haven't necessarily changed, I still think that there are people here that are willing to see what we have to offer and really use those resources, whether it's the ocean or the farms or the mountains. I mean, I hope that people know that like you can catch a fish one day on the ocean and then be frying it in the woods of the mountains that afternoon, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, I guess I just hope that people realize everything that there is here and use it to their advantage. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I think a lot of the younger, you know, as you mentioned, the younger chefs and younger bloggers like yourself who are there, you know, are really sort of opening people's eyes to maybe some of the newer possibilities and the sort of the newer mixing of things where you're making more interesting things rather than, you know, staying with the traditional. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the traditional, but, you know, there's it's always fun to sort of even mix up the traditional stuff and just add something new to the conversation. Put a new twist on it. For sure. Well, I saw on your blog that you, along with Betty Liu of Le Juste Orange, host food photography and styling workshops. 
How did these come about? Yeah, so we're so excited. We're kind of just getting into it. I think how it all happened was Betty and I both realized that we were in the same state. And we're like, what? Let's get together. So once we actually met and realized that we not only both love food, but we really like each other, that we wanted to start sharing that. And I think that was the main reason for both of us in starting our blogs was to kind of share our heritage and where we're from. And, you know, she has some amazing Chinese cooking on her blogs. And we want to showcase that with people and really bring people that may not know each other together. And she's a brilliant photographer. So I think that was another thing that we were like, well, why don't we just get people together, show them our cooking, show them how to use their cameras and make a beautiful meal out of it. So that's where that whole thought process went. Awesome. Can you tell me more about these workshops? Because it's not just about like photography, because I saw that you guys are doing like, you know, mushroom foraging and like bread baking and brick ovens and stuff like that. Like that sounds really awesome and fun. Yeah, we kind of wanted to incorporate some unusual activities that maybe someone doesn't do often. And we also want to kind of base it around where we're going to be. So we did just a daytime workshop in Boston where we went to the SOA, which is the south end of Boston, the farmer's market. And we then cooked a meal with the produce we had used. So in that vein, we kind of decided that with going to New Hampshire, this little town of Tamworth is adorable, and they have the New Hampshire Mushroom Company there, as well as a Sunnyfield Brick Oven Bakery, which you'd never think like these two awesome companies were in this one little town. So we kind of were like, well, maybe we can do some mushroom foraging. And the man that owns the company is so sweet, and he does this basically a 4-H club every Sunday where he takes people out foraging and teaches them about the poisonous and also edible (laughs) mushrooms. And then the bakery is there inviting us in to watch them with their sourdough bread baking process. And that's something I'm really interested in because growing a yeast culture scares me. (laughs) I'm really intimidated by it. That sounds like an amazing couple of days. And, you know, definitely, you know, I hope it goes well and that you guys continue doing them because it sounds like a ton of fun. Oh, thank you so much. It is fun. I can't wait. Well, Meg, here at the dinner special, we talk with food heroes about dishes that are special to them and how we can make it at home. Can you talk about a dish that is special to you and a little bit about the story behind the dish? Yeah, so Eggs Benedict. (laughs) It's kind of strange, but it's really special to me and my family because it's the one dish that my father makes. (laughs) It's the only cooking he ever does. And it's really special because he does it every Christmas for us. And he's been doing it since we were little kids. So that was one dish that I still don't feel like I do as good as my dad does. But it's still something that I just adore and I still have to perfect it. I still need to like pick his brain on how he gets his hollandaise just right. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a skill. It really is. I've broken so many of those. Right. Now, do you have this Eggs Benedict recipe or attempt at your dad's Eggs Benedict on your blog? I don't yet. I really need to. I think I'm going to do that this Christmas. I think it'll be a Christmas, a weird Christmas post. Oh, that'll be awesome. Well, let's say that your dad was making or maybe you were making your dad's Eggs Benedict recipe and you could invite three famous people over to share this with. Who would you invite over? 
Okay, so because it reminds me of Christmas and my childhood, I think I would have to say Louisa May Alcott, even though she's dead, <laughs> J.K. Rowling, and Roald Dahl. They're all authors, but for me, writing and food goes so hand in hand that they almost inspire my cooking. So those three would have to be my choices. I think they would appreciate the Christmasness of it. <laughs> well, I usually ask, you know, what movie would you pair with this dish? But maybe since you're inviting authors over, we can maybe ask, switch up the question a little bit to what book would you pair with this dish? You know, this is going to sound kind of boring, but probably Little Women. <laughs> it's my favorite and... I think because the dish, again, reminds me it's so nostalgic for childhood and holidays, I think that that book would go perfectly with it. Well, I call the next part of the Dinner Special podcast The Pressure Cooker. I am going to ask you seven fast and fun questions that we want to know your answers to. Are you up for it? Yes, definitely. Number one, which food shows or cooking shows do you watch? Oh, none. <laughs> I'm so bad. I love Ina Garden, but she's probably the only show I can tolerate. <laughs> okay. Number two, what are some food blogs or websites we have to know about? I love Cinny from My Blue and White Kitchen. I love her blog. Well, you already know Betty, so but Betty's is great. And Beth's from Local Milk. Everybody knows Beth, but hers is just so stunning. She was obviously, like, I feel like most people's first inspirations for blogs. Number three, who do you follow on Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, or Snapchat that make you happy? Chrissy from The Cottage Farm. Her stuff is beautiful. She was a floral designer, I believe. She just has great aesthetic. And I love also following Anna from Rifle Paper Company. Hers, too. She just has great vision really inspiring cool number four what is the most unusual or treasured item you have in your kitchen i would say my copper pots that my grandmother gave me i love them but they're really hard to keep clean <laughs> and my KitchenAid. my husband bought it for me our first christmas together so that one's really special number five name one ingredient you used to dislike that you now love you know, I don't think that there is one that I used to dislike. I've pretty much eaten everything since day one, except beets. I still can't handle beets. <laughs> Are they the red beets or the golden beets or just beets in general? And you know what? I think it's a texture thing. They're a little fleshy. <laughs> All right. So beets, no go. No beets. <laughs> okay. Now, number six. What are a few cookbooks that make your life better? Rennie Darling, I don't know if anyone even knows who she is, but she has a really old cookbook. It's called Quick Breads and Cakes, and I just love it. I don't even know where you can find it anymore. You can probably order it online, but her banana bread recipe is like the best. And then I've recently been going through the original Boston Cooking School cookbook, which is really interesting. I think it was from, at least the copy I have is from the early 1920s. And it's just seeing the ingredients in there. It's so interesting, but it's really cool. It's inspiring. And finally, number seven, what song or album just makes you want to cook? So I'm a huge dork. 
And I listen to a lot of Broadway musicals if I'm by myself in the house. But if I have company over, I usually put on like Edith Piaf or Regina Spector, something a little more calming, a little less dramatic. (laughs) But how do you know your guests wouldn't like your Broadway musicals? You know what? They might. They might love Les Mis. (laughs) I do. Exactly. Well, congratulations, Meg. You have officially survived the pressure cooker. Oh, yay. Meg, thank you so much for joining me here on the Dinner Special Podcast. You're on social media. What's the best way for us to keep posted with what you're up to? So I'm Bread and Barrow on Instagram. That's probably the place I update the most, which is kind of ridiculous because I don't update it that often. (laughs) But there and then just on the blog. Cool. And the blog is, of course, breadandbarrow.com. Yes. Meg, thank you again for taking the time. It's been totally my pleasure. I hope you had a good time. Oh, thank you so much, Gabriel. This was awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Head over to thedinnerspecial.com for recipes, highlights from every show, super blog articles, and all the wonderful ways to keep in touch on social media. Your culinary journey awaits, so let's get cooking. Let's get cooking.